Ghetto. You are now beyond the ghetto. Broadcasting from the rainy city in the Lower Mainland, here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, you are now Beyond, beyond the Ghetto. Here on RadioGay.ca and podcast on iTunes. Colorful Radio, RadioGay.ca. It's time for Cody's Review. This is Stephen Emery. And right now, the out-on-screen queer film festival is playing in Vancouver. It's been going from August 17th, and it will finish on August 27th. So I went to see the opening gala uh, called Yaji and Kita, the Midnight Pilgrims. In Japanese, that's Mayonaka no Yaji-san, Kita-san So um, this was quite the over-the-top movie. Here's what it's about. I'll read you the, the bio line. Yaji and Kita tells the dizzying story of two gay samurai who are just looking for a slice of peace in this crazy mixed-up world. Setting out for the fabled land of Ise, where Yaji hopes his lover Kita can kick his nasty drug habit, the true proclaim with the help of a legion of backup dancers that they were born, born to be gay, and with that their wild quest begins. This is a crazy over-the-top uh, comedy. It's a musical, but it doesn't have many songs. It's a road movie, but it takes place on foot. Well, they start off on a motorcycle, and then they're told to go back and um, by somebody in the film and get on foot and walk through the woods. The period shifts from modern time, but it's supposed to be set in the Edo period, which was basically the time before the Europeans came, so before 1870. And... Um, if you've ever seen Japanese samurai films and uh, even modern films like Suicide Club where a bunch of high school kids jump off a train platform or those uh, samurai films with mysticism, even Godzilla where there's a young kid who has to communicate with a mystical creature, Yaji and Kita basically take off and parody just about every genre of Japanese film that has ever been made in the last 30 years. So if you're a follower of these films and you've seen them subtitled or not, then you'll get a lot of the in-jokes. You'll get a lot of what's going on. If you haven't seen those kind of films, it's still very hilarious in a lot of parts, at least for the first half. And then it goes into this trippy, weird, uh, mushroomed out. There's mushrooms all over the place. And by the way, that's a legal drug in Japan. And um, a lot of people don't know that. So once you know that drugs are, uh, the mushrooms are legal in Japan, you got to wonder if the filmmakers were actually taking a lot of them when they made the film. Um, it's a lot of fun, but uh, it does stretch out a little too long, and it gets really weird and trippy toward the end. There's even a couple of jarring serious parts, one about sexual abuse thrown in toward the end. And it does try to deal with some serious topics uh, such as leading a closeted lifestyle and leaving your wife, in this case, murdering your wife, um, to go into the gay lifestyle. And it 
does actually, the actors are way over the top and overacting the whole time, but they manage to portray a real deep, sincere feeling for each other toward the end of the movie. Too bad it just goes on and on and on. I think if it was shortened up, uh, 30 minutes was chopped away, um, that would have been a little bit uh, better. There are some hilarious parts. Watch out if you ever see it on video or go to a film festival and see it somewhere. Uh, watch for the uh, high school um, worshipping girls that follow one of the samurai lads around and you'll get quite a few laughs out of that. The other thing is that often the two have to, un, uh, in one of the places, they have to go through these gates. It's a quest movie and they have to get from one prefecture, which is a province, into another by doing things for the local uh, shogunate in the area, the ruler and uh, played with hilarious stereotypical oh, samurai um, warrior kind of if you've ever seen even Shogun you'll get what I mean uh, these guys are these guys are over the top macho and so Yaji and Kita have to at one point pretend to be a comedy troupe and the joke there is that everybody who tells the worst jokes managed to make people laugh and get in which if you know Japanese culture is a stab at the bunryaku tradition of stand-up comedy which is mostly punning and um, to the foreign ear is kind of unfunny and to modern Japanese kind of unfunny as well so like I say if you're in the know about Japanese culture and Japanese films you'll get a lot of the in jokes if you're not it'll still be fairly amusing the movie is a bit too long and stretched out uh, it's a great start. It's very visually captivating and the special effects are pretty amazing. So if you've ever get a chance, if it ever comes around again, Yaji and Kita, The Midnight Pilgrims, one of the more entertaining uh, gay films from Asia that are out that has been put out recently. And the music in this segment is by Japanese punk rock band Shonen Naifu. Shonen Naifu. Hello, this is Stephen Emery with more reviews from the ninth or the uh, 2006 out on screen uh, film festival here in Vancouver, 1996. That's a while ago. I should mention uh, uh, this is a little bit historic, but uh, it's been 18 years since the out on screen uh, film festival first started. And actually, back going back to 1996, that was when I was seeing the films in the video in. And now they're playing, of course, at the Tinseltown Movie Theaters, which uh, it's been that way for the last five years. But that's a that's a pretty big jump. And and also there are films being shown in the brand new uh, Van City, relatively new Van City Theater, too. Uh, quite a big jump. And um, this festival is doing better than it ever has before in terms of attendance and in terms of presence and quality of movies. 
Tonight I'm going to talk about the Canadian premiere of Ron Oliver's Shock to the System, a Donald Strachey mystery, or Strachey mystery. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It's the actually the second uh, in a series of Donald Strachey mysteries, and the first one wasn't able to be shown at last year's film festival because they didn't quite get it in on time. It was filmed uh, in Langley and out way out in the burbs um i can't remember if they said abbotsford or not but somewhere in that area or mission um to make it look like albany uh new york and they pretty well almost succeeded except uh one point where the car drives into his office parking lot and it's you know there's a sign saying the langley something or something store so just about everybody in the lower mainland kind of giggled at that because Langley is not Albany, New York, when the signs say it isn't. So uh, the uh, outline of the story is that there is a murder, it is a mystery, of a young gay man who is involved in the ex-gay movement. Now, this film works really well as a parody comedy. Um, The scary bits or the suspenseful bits aren't really all that suspenseful or scary, but that's okay because... Uh, as a parody, they don't really have to be. They're kind of a little too cliche-ish uh, when you'll see them. You, if you see them, you'll know what I mean to be that scary. But it works fine as a comedy. The other thing that this film tries to do, though, is have some very profound, serious parts in it that are comments on the ex-gay movement, on gay identity. Um, there's even a sort of subplot with the boyfriend where there's a little too melodramatic drama about uh, what would have happened if I wasn't gay and then the boyfriend suddenly kind of out of the blue having an argument about that and then resolving it just as quickly, thank God, because it wasn't going anywhere as a subplot. But anyway, just to say that there are very profoundly serious parts. Um, The detective's ex-boyfriend died for reasons uh, of suicide. That's pretty serious. Those serious parts need to have an established tone and an established mood that is separate or at least gives us time to get away from the parody, the overall parody and the overall comedy of the movie. I don't feel that objective. I don't feel that seriousness was achieved in this movie. So it came off that the serious parts came across insincere. I I think this has to be done through... Uh, a little bit higher caliber of acting. I appreciate that the director is starting off some first-timers even. Um, but when you have a mother who has lost her son and she's being questioned by detective, the age-old task of that mother character or the Im- person with the emotional loss character is to come across both as indignant that she's being questioned and sad that she's lost a dear loved one. Coming across as only being indignant that you're being questioned and not showing emotion about the loss of your son just the day before isn't convincing. But the, the other problem is that the overall parody tone of the movie is still lingering You've still been laughing about a part that was rather hilarious just recently before. And and then the actors are rather suddenly, because there doesn't seem to be a change in mood or tone or or um, acting um, character that need or s- stronger acting that needs to set that tone or a combination of all three to let me know that, oh, we're in a really serious part. So I'm kind of going along in the parody mode and the boyfriend is talking about or the uh, detective is talking about his ex-boyfriend's suicide. Oh, I'm not supposed to be still kind of mellowly laughing or amused here. This is really serious, but I'm not there. 
this is very hard to do in a, in a genre such as mystery. Um, the X-Files used to pull it off by having separate comedy episodes from drama episodes. And in the movie, they did mix it. But again, they had definite changes of scenery and mood and atmosphere and all the stuff that high budgets could afford. So maybe it's not fair to ask of a lower budget movie. But um, the standard has been set by a lower budget play and a lower budget movie, which was... Um, the uh, Human Remains uh, movie that came out about uh, 1993. There were definite separations between the hilarious parts, the scary parts, which were truly disturbing in some parts of that movie, and the serious parts. Definite changes of tone, definite uh, differences in actor delivery. I knew when there were the serious times and I knew when there were the hilarious times and I knew when there were the mysterious night scenes when somebody might get killed. This film tried to do all that too, but only pulled off the parody. So overall, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. And if you were to ask me, is it a fun movie to go see at a film festival? I would say yes, it's a fun film festival movie. Is it substantial enough and does it have enough um, strength to appear as a TV series, which is what it sort of seems to be made for, I would actually kind of look in the direction of the director and say, are you serious? So this has been Stephen Emery talking about Shock to the System, which played on Thursday, August 24th at the Out on Screen Film Festival. This is Stephen Emery with more reviews from 2006 out on screen. The next uh, movie I'd like to talk about is a documentary, uh, Gay Sex in the 70s. Gay Sex in the 70s uh, is a documentary by Donald Barker and, and directed by Joseph Lovett, if I'm reading the credits as I should be. It's an unapologetic documentary which gleefully exposes the post-Stonewall pre-HIV area of gay sexual awakening in New York City. And it is unapologetic and it does just that. Um, it is a very uh, good documentary according to its talking points. And in that, it does actually touch on Stonewall and it does touch on the advent of AIDS and the arc in between. The arc sort of goes like this. Stonewall, the liberation uh, politically leading to carefree sex, which then led to more excessive sex and drug use, which then um, was led to, led to um, the onset of AIDS, the mysterious disease. There is an arc there, and the people in the documentary talked about that arc in all of their talking points, and they dealt with it well, and uh, except for one facet, which I'll get back to. But they dealt with the arc. However, the photos and the clips that went along with that um, mainly set in New York City and I'll talk about context too the context is really about New York City it's not really gay sex in the 70s experience uh, about Winnipeg and the panelists that talk about it after and the panelists discussion was excellent by the way mentioned that in many parts of Canada and rural United States and uh, many other cities in the United States um, you know the, except for San Francisco and New York um, this kind of gay sex in the 70s really wasn't in their experience. Most of the panelists were from that era, um, or at least came out in that era or went through it. A couple of them were actually in New York in that era. 
So, other than the context that should be gay sex in New York in the uh, 70s, the other thing is that the footage kept focusing on the carefree, unapologetic um, sex aspects of it. And really, there was only limited footage about the politicization that happened shortly after Stonewall to get that sex party going and to tie in the gay lib with going to the baths at night as a lot of the characters in that movie were doing because a lot of them were activists so it focused mainly all the, all the footage all the visuals focused mainly on the sex scene um, but the talking points also talked about the politics but the visuals weren't there the AIDS section yes there were some visuals about AIDS there were some visuals showing the gay men's health crisis uh, posters and banners but again the it wasn't really in-depth enough. It was really, I would say, most of the imagery was 80-90% focused on the carefree sex. And that didn't match the probably 60% of the talking points that were about uh, gay sex. I think, and maybe this is just me personally, that the talking points and the video imagery that um, the video imagery should go around the talking points a lot tighter. I think that's what makes a good, solid documentary and what really supports the arc that these gentlemen were trying to talk about and get across. Interestingly, at the very end of the movie, it does go beyond the 70s into the present. And the men talk about the relationships of uh, the advocacy of how it is, you know, good to have um, carefree, not carefree, I should say good to have uninhibited uh, sexual liberation and that sex is good. That's the main message of the movie. But they also say that nowadays that has to be accompanied by safer sex. That message came through in the talking points very strongly. Interestingly enough, though, a lot of the images of the parades now and some of the some of the more um, sexual dances and you know um, uh, boys dancing on the floats very very similarly looked like the footage from the seventies and looked just as carefree and that that was interesting because what is not being talked about in the movie and maybe it's not the subject is that. A lot of careless sex is still going on. And one of the panelists point that out, that, you know, he thinks that what's going on, what went on in New York in the 70s that he didn't experience in uh, Winnipeg or a smaller city in uh, United States is now going on in Vancouver. And he's seeing it as a sex educator and he doesn't really see the difference. I think that if you're going to show doc, um, show footage from now that just saying that it's all right as long as safer sex is used, isn't enough. I think if you're going to show um, footage from now, there should be a mention that the problem is still continuing. Also, part of the arc of the 70s, and any of us who've read Randy Schiltz's book, um, A Band Played On, knows that part of the arc of the 70s coming into 81 about AIDS is that a lot of men were resistant to starting to practice safer sex. They didn't want the party to end. They were addicted to sex, a lot of them at this time. The drug use was fueling that at this time. Now, the documentary dealt very well with the overuse of antibiotics. That kind of preluded that. But it didn't really talk... And it did talk about how when AIDS came along... To be fair, a lot of groups like the GMHC were at the forefront 
of HIV prevention, or that gay men were at the forefront of caring for each other. But to be fair, it didn't mention that also there was the resistance in the gay community to start practicing safer sex. In fact, a lot of gay men thought that this message to start practicing safer sex and the gay cancer was a propaganda ploy by the Reagan government to be anti-sex. And um, I can't fault them at the time for thinking that because that was the climate and the atmosphere and that it was about a lot of blame. All of that very important chapter of resistance towards safer sex and the political reasons behind it and the suspicion behind it should have been in that movie if they were going to also show the parts of the onset of AIDS and how gay men started to care for each other. If you're going to cut off the sexual revolution topic of the movie before AIDS hit, then it doesn't have to be dealt with. But if you're not, and they didn't, then all of the dynamics have to be dealt with thoroughly, in my opinion. And those of us who've read Randy Schultz's and the band played on, we're probably thinking this just isn't going into depth enough and what you're left with is watching a movie with all the foreboding that the AIDS part is coming and then is dealt with the movie, but then always focusing on the carefree sex as the main visual message and kind of not matching with the talking points. I think this documentary needs to be reworked a little bit and that the arc needs to be shown a lot clearer. Um, so I think it's a good attempt and a good start, but more work in that uh, whole era needs to be done. I am Stephen Emery for RadioGay.ca, and I will continue going through the out on to the out on screen festival showings and bring you some more reports very shortly. Thanks for listening to me. from the Out on Screen Film Festival, uh, which recently finished on August uh, 27th. I have a bit of a cold today, so um, bear with me. A lot of air-conditioned theaters. Uh, the film I'm going to talk about right now is called Innocent. Um, it is by Simon Chung. Um, it was made in Hong Kong and Canada, um, mostly in um, Canada. It's a film about a 17-year-old Eric. Actually, he's 16 in the movie. Um, who reluctantly emigrates with his parents from Hong Kong to a suburb in Toronto. Um, he, having landed abruptly in a new country and culture, Eric must navigate his family expectations and peer pressures as he deals with his coming out. Um, so basically, he makes a few new friends in there. In this movie, basically everybody that, um, everybody that Eric faces as a potential lover or friend is an antagonist and it's one of those things uh, that it's really hard for youth to come out and it shows it from the cultural perspective of somebody from Hong Kong. In fact when the boy is in Hong Kong I think he's just about to engage or was uh, in, I wasn't quite sure, um, you know, uh, a burgeoning um, gay friendship with another teenage boy. 
but he's yanked from that and he's put in Canada and I thought the portrayal of all the things that a new ESL student in Canada has to go through and I do teach these young lads uh, was quite good and quite interesting to see what was happening to the family and the family dynamics and I like the fact that gay films go outside just the experience of being gay and focus on the whole family I thought that was really well done my Chinese friends who saw it um, who some of them from Hong Kong themselves thought it was a little too cliche um, and but I think it's one of those things where all of the types of situations are trying to be put into one family to show everything that probably goes on across many families so that might have made it a little soap operish but uh, as a person who's not in that culture and community um, I found it interesting <coughs> excuse me um, I thought that the homophobia that the student encountered in high school was a little over the top for an inner city high school, but probably appropriate for the suburbs. And, um, you know, the standard, um, loving the new cool high school friend and the high school friend who's homophobic was there. Again, I thought that was cliche. I've seen it so many, so many times. The cliche I had a real problem with as a white guy who happens to like Asian guys, as well as guys from almost any race, is the portrayal of the, what you call, stereotypical rice queen in the negative portrayal. Um, I have been doing interviews with people who have been trying to reclaim the word in a positive light to simply mean a white man who likes dating Asian men. I don't really know if the term rice queen is, is great anyway. It's just the whole aspect of rice being Asian men and queen being... Uh, a gay man. It's 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 um, some of my Asian friends think it's a very childish and stupid term. I tend to think it's just a a fun, campy term not to be taken too seriously. But the idea of the portrayal of the rice queen as self-effacing, uh, pedophilic or hebophilic, hebophilic's the attraction to teenagers, um, as being manipulating, but also doing it in a really friendly, smarmy way. I just think that that portrayal in this movie has just set back uh, quote-unquote rice queen Asian men or white men Asian men relations about 10 years thanks a lot I really didn't need that stereotype my Asian friends didn't need that stereotype it was amusing it was kind of funny but quite frankly it's tired there are some people like that in fact I met some men in Japan uh, white guys who are quite predatory and quite embarrassing um, to be of the same race or North American or whatever. I really detested those guys. They were foul <coughs> people who thought of Asian men as nothing more than toys, boy toys. But you know what? They're the minority. And to show that in a film like this just doesn't help. I understand that it's a young gay man coming out and that he's supposed to have all of these problems and maybe he encountered this problem. And... These kind of predatory uh, white men are problems for young Asian men sometimes coming out. Um, that That is honest. However, to have that as the main portrayal of the white guy without any other sort of um, white men around who are nicer, I, I think it's just uh, stereotypical. And quite frankly, um, if, if Simon Chung is one of those people who believes... Uh, that maybe Asian men should only date Asian men or whatever. I don't think he does because he has the young Asian man pursue a young white man who's internally homophobic. Um, but I, I think if I think there there is a message coming around now from some young Asian men who think that, or older Asian men who think that Asians should only date Asians and that rice queens are the main stereotype, the main characteristic, and that's racist. And 
that racism isn't helped by this stereotype at all. So um, I think to have a little bit of com comedic relief, uh, I think there's a huge expense being taken there. Also, you know, to be fair, um, he has a refugee Chinese person who basically ends up also betraying Eric by, by um, <coughs> I don't want to give away the film too much, but by, uh, you know, involving money and involving deceit. Um, I'm sure that newly landed immigrants who are refugees, who are having a desperate time, who are from the poor parts of China, um, there's cultural issues about that. There's a whole situation happening in China where people who are better off despise people who are peasants. Well, this stereotype of the peasant class Chinese immigrant ripping off the middle uh, upper class Chinese young lad just reinforces another negative stereotype that doesn't really need to be reinforced at this time. So Simon Chung, you know, I would, I, I would, um, I would, I would examine more of the kind of political consequences of what you're trying to say. You are making a film, and you're portraying basically stereotypes, and those stereotypes are negative. Maybe you feel that that is that is honest, and maybe you feel that that are the, those are the types of traps, and you wanted to show all the types of traps that a 17-year-old Asian boy might be still falling into. But I think I wish you'd found a more a less stereotypical way um, to do it um, that stops that just um, doesn't add more fire to the fuel that's already there. You set back Rice Queen. Asian men relations for about 10 years and you just reinforce the peasant stereotype of the peasant thief from China uh, again and again and you know isn't there enough problems do we need to reinforce that just for the sake of comedy that's my question for the film Innocent which showed on Friday August 25th at the Out on Screen Film Festival um, overall I think there's potential in Simon Chung's work and I think he has potential to show a lot of cultural insights uh, in a very entertaining way Watch those stereotypes, though. Take care. This has been Stephen Cody from RadioGay.ca. This is Stephen Emery, and I was at Out on Screen uh, in the last week of August, uh, which just ended August 25th. 
on um, or sorry August 27th but on August 25th a film was shown called Boy Culture which uh, is a bit of a tacky title named after a bar I don't really know what the bar had to do with the rest of the movie so with that title and here's the story uh, Boy Culture is a story of a handsome hustler a high end escort known only as X who gambles with love and lust in his sexy sharp romantic comedy from Festival Favorite so X has a full house He's in love with his impossibly attractive roommate, Andrew, who torments him by throwing himself into the dating scene and bringing it back to the loft. Andrew is a beautiful man. Uh, it's a multiracial movie, which I like. Andrew happens to be uh, African-American. Um, things are further complicated by Joey, his other roommate, a sexually voracious twink who longs for X's affection. Add a reclusive high-maintenance trick to the mix, and X has a tangled web to unweave. With all of that unlikely and unrealistic uh, premise happening, um, this movie could have been a complete uh, fluffy flop, um, much in the same light as Summer of Love, which was terribly acted and, quite frankly, a ridiculous movie. However, this movie is great. Boy culture has such good acting, and the, the, the actors pull off both the campiness but allow an underlying deep sensitivity and individual, individuality to the stereotypes that they play, that they become unique, real-life characters. And that makes this movie very good and highly entertaining. And actually, despite the the kind of little bit impossible scenario you know hustler living in a house with three three roommates that are in love with him individual elements of those stories can be realistic there are aspects of that could, that could be real life thrown all together it might have been a melodramatic soap opera but it wasn't because it was so well acted also there were interesting little plot twists and surprises in there subtle little surprises that are thrown in that really do um, take a take what could be a stereotypical plot line and th and mix it around and throw it around. This is this is quite a good work. It's highly entertaining and it's highly fun. The director uh, or producer, I'm not sure which in the program um, because it doesn't quite say. Anyway, it's an Alan Broca film. Um, I want to see more of this. This has been done very very well. So. Um, if boy culture comes around, and I think this is one of the films that should come around the gay circuit pretty soon, make sure you go out and catch it. It is an amazingly tender, uh, hilarious, um, sensitive um, film that looks at the dynamics of longing and love between friends um, in situations that make it difficult to fall in love. It also deals with the aspect of taking care of a, a younger quote-unquote twink or younger gay man who's, who's, who's coming out but hasn't found himself and how we can take care of people in those situations. Very tender, very funny film, very well done. That is Boy Culture, and this is Stephen Emery reporting from Out On Screen. Hi there, I'm Stephen Emery, and I hope you enjoyed the 
five uh, reviews that I did for the films, uh, and I hope they come to film festivals around your area if you're not around Vancouver. Or uh, limited release, a couple of them I think are well-deserving. So um, this is Stephen Emery for RadioGay.ca, and I'm going to leave you by uh, with a song that I think is really cool. It's by The Predicates. It's called Gay Boyfriend, and I got it off the Podsafe Music Network. So here it is, The Predicates with Gay Boyfriend. Have a safe September, and take care. Take care.